Chapter Forty Nine of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Nine. His hand fell and closed upon the weapon. His long fingers seemed to clasp its shiny surface with a sense of relief, as though it were the touch of the skin of an old friend. Dead, he said. Dead, Amy. Shall I retire for a moment, sir? No. He struggled to master the muscles of his face with a horrible, helpless grimace. The effort was not quite successful, Mrs. May observed. No. Stay where you are, please, and tell me about it. Just a moment. I have been ill recently. What was it with her? Hemorrhage, sir, the doctor said, among other causes. She just slipped away about thirty-six hours after the child was born. That letter I brought you, she began it quite a fortnight before, scribbling it off and on, and only ending it about a minute before the pains came on. Did you gather that, sir, from the look of the letter? There's a smear of ink. I only got it from her in time, for she was doing herself harm writing it. And after that she was never well enough to take it up again. I put it away, for I had my orders to bring it to you, sir, only if the result was fatal." That hair, sir, is baby's hair. I cut it off. She can spare it. She has got quite a lot. Then, if Amy had recovered, I was to hear nothing more of her. I see. She was always sly. Too clever. Go on, Mrs. May. Oh, yes, take a seat. I am in no hurry now. She was quite easy, sir, and calm. Only a very little bit nervous at times for fear her constitution should not stand the strain at her age. She was gone thirty. She knew she was anemic, and that that sometimes stands in the way of ladies making a good recovery. She used to say that was the only thing she had against her, and that she was anyhow much better in that way than she had been. I was a bit uneasy myself, not on her grounds. She seemed to get so languid as time went on, and it wasn't in her character I could see. She was naturally a quick mover, and so very bright. We all adored her, sir. There was no other word for it. Days when she felt worst, she laughed most. But for all, she was nearly always so cheerful. She had a good deal to worry her mentally, one saw that. Any other woman would have given way more, and used her excuse of not feeling up to the mark. The first three days she came to us, I must tell you, she did cry. She seemed to have caught a chill on the journey down, or been a good deal put out or something. Of course we didn't know if she had travelled alone or not. She was hardly fit to, I should have said. And them that was with her didn't seem to have taken much care of her. Nor she hadn't eaten anything. Thoroughly chilled and fagged out she was, and her face bleached with crying. But in a very short time she seemed to make up her mind and settle down to what was before her. I never yet saw anyone so reasonable and gentle over it all. It's then people show their character, sir, to us nurses. You wouldn't believe how ladies alter when they're lying there, giving their orders, and haven't the strength to be anything but natural. Some of the seemingly soft ones do turn out so vulgar and get to speak so coarse. Her never. A real lady, if ever there was one. Had she any plans? Did she speak of them to you? She had all sorts of plans, sir, 
but they all depended on that infant when it came. It was to be such an infant as never was. She wanted it to be a girl. She said she would so enjoy dressing a girl and making it frocks. I forgot to tell you, sir, she made all the baby's things, and beautifully. Wherever did she learn to sew like that? No ladies can sew nowadays. As for a boy, a boy was ever so much harder to clothe, and took such a lot of starting in the world. Not exactly a woman's business, so she said, and as he would only have his mother to look to. But a girl, she said, if only she's pretty. Excuse me, sir, she used to go on, and it will be pretty, my child and his. A girl, if only she's pretty and well brought up, and that I'll see to, is sure to marry young and well, and get herself a place in the world. People don't take any more notice of her birth when once she's changed her name. You must excuse me, sir, but we all knew how it was. Let alone her not wearing a wedding ring, she didn't stoop to gas about being a widow, and so on, like most women in her place would do. She was too proud to make a secret of how she came to be there, and for the matter of that, she knew that professional people don't talk. They haven't time or inclination. He took up the little lock of hair, like spun glass, lying on the desk beside him. It consisted merely of two or three yellow curving films. He put it to his lips. The action delighted Mrs. May. Where's the child? With me, sir, for the present. It is only a week old. I have got an excellent nurse for it. Everything's done right. She saw to most things before she went off. It wasn't so sudden as that. She even made her will all fair and square with a lawyer, and left me a trustee. The other's a gentleman, Dr. Pottinger of the asylum. He is going to take the little girl into his house, along with his own children, when she's a little older. Mrs. Pottinger is quite agreeable. Such a nice lady, and so fond of Miss Amy. She was with her, sir, nearly always. She was next best to a husband, though nothing's better than that when you're ill. She cried when Miss Amy died. She said, Oh, nurse, such a splendid woman. Why couldn't we have saved her? There was nobody more fit to live and bring up a child than her. Mrs. Pottinger and the doctor always told me that she was their idea of the best woman the really newest woman, and that instead of dying of this baby, she should have lived to have more. She'd got hold of the right principle. Mrs. Pottinger brought white roses that she had been and bought and covered her with them, because she was like a white rose herself. What's the child's name? Esme Misericordia, sir. Misericordia was Miss Stevens' mother's name. Esme was just fancy. We had her christened in the mother's room at once for her to be able to be present. She loved all the church ceremonies, she said, though she wasn't exactly a regular churchwoman, and a christening she liked next best to a wedding. She often read over the words to herself. After it was over, she kept repeating a particular bit that had caught her fancy. Let him pass through the waves of this troublesome world. That phrase doesn't happen to be included in the formula for the private baptism of infants. No, sir, but she knew it by heart. So might we all, if we thought about it. A troublesome world, indeed, and she had to leave it against her own will. She had lots of work in her yet. Oh, and to see her poor white vexed face lying there quite still and forced to be quiet, 
as if God had said, Don't move. The woman wept. Dand rose, trembling. The nurse was not surprised. She considered that, on the whole, he had borne the news well. A bit upset, of course, but what man that had known Amy would not have been? And he was no godless person. That correction of his showed that he was conversant with the ceremonial of the church. She had only been in his company a minute or two, yet he struck her as a very odd man, this betrayer of Miss Amy's. Her eyes followed him as he ranged aimlessly about the room, working it off a little, so she supposed. His hand shook as he took a photograph up from the table and showed it to her. "'Is this like her?' "'Miss Amy? In a way it is. Oh, very. Was it done from her, sir?' "'Yes, my Amy.' "'No, it's an angel. Were you kind to her, Mrs. May? Tell me. I know you were. Besides, her letter says so. She says you are a dear. But whether you were kind or not, the Lord alone knows. I don't. I shall never know anything.' Mrs. May watched him, full of pity, as he walked hesitatingly to a little cabinet in a corner of the room and fumbled in one of the drawers. He was a fine fellow, and he evidently felt Amy's death keenly, and perhaps some remorse at the manner of it. Nay, it was pure sorrow, she thought, for as a result of her observations and knowledge of character, and judging from what Amy had implied over and over again, the thread that had run through all the disjointed talk of her delirium, he had behaved on the whole well and as a gentleman. He had a wife, she knew, the stiff, handsome creature who had passed her in the office a while ago, with the perfunctory smile. Poor Miss Stevens! One realized that she had had something to bear. Her own fault? Nurse May knew nothing about that. That was between themselves. Mrs. Dand, though she had not Amy's charm, was a nice lady. Gentlemen will engage in these complications." The weakest went to the wall, as a rule. Mr. Dand came back to her, with a roll of banknotes in his hands, which he ran through professionally, flirting them one by one with his fingers. They crackled and rustled agreeably, but the woman's eyes did not light up with any gleam of cupidity. She was crying. Dand noted that fact with some satisfaction, as he handed her the roll across the desk. "'There's a hundred odd in ten-pound notes.' It's all the loose cash I have about me. Accept it from the grateful father of Esme Misericordia. Is that her wretched name? It is her name. Mrs. May was puzzled, for she had seen him kiss the foolish lock of hair. Don't you want to see her, sir? I see her? Why should I? She is your own little child, sir. Own little devil. I hate it, I tell you. Because it was Miss Amy's death, sir. Mrs. May suggested humbly. Exactly. I would not look at it for the world. The missile of the crowned caprice, the cruel, elfish bolt that was sent out to destroy her. It is very like you, sir. Then it is like a man who has a good deal to be ashamed of, and who doesn't know what he is saying at this minute. Now to business. Will you do something for me? Certainly, Mr. Dand, and welcome. And thank you, sir, indeed, for the money, which there's no need for you to give, but it will come in very handy. 
I should like you to understand, sir, that I worked for her over and above what she paid. I did it for love, for love of her. All right, all right. You are perfectly justified in accepting a bonus, since the affair is wound up. Wound up. I want you, then, to kindly remain a moment and witness a document for me. I mean, wait while I prepare it. He sat down and wrote busily for ten minutes. Distant hootings broke the summer air. All over town, and in this office, busy men were moving about and stretching themselves, preparing gleefully to knock off for luncheon. A fat city wasp that crawled on the window-pane began to buzz about, surprised that no one seemed to allow themselves to be disturbed by it. Neither the busy scribe at the desk, or the quiet woman in black who was watching him, averted a shoulder in its direction. Mrs. May had dried her eyes, and was taking stock of the room, too queer for her taste. She decided there were too many mirrors in it for comfort. She thought she saw in one of them Amy's face, as she remembered it before the lid was screwed down. She could visualize it clearly now. The thing was so recent. But she had a strong desire to ask Mr. Dand if she might have a photograph of her darling to carry away as a remembrance. He would be sure to have a better likeness somewhere than the one he had shown her, and which she had lied about to please him. She sat still, summoning up her courage to ask him this slight favour. She fancied tears in his eyes, dimming the spectacles, but she could not be sure. She noticed a mark on his left temple. A wound? A sting? It was red and angry. He looked kind, he looked good. Again she began to wonder why he had seduced Amy. If he had had the luck to meet Amy first, while he was still a bachelor, he must certainly have married her. He could not have resisted her. No man could, with the great gift of marriage in his hand free to give her, and yet refuse it. Amy had come on the scene too late, that was all. Amy loved him, Mrs. May was convinced, although she never talked about that part of it. She never did talk about personal things. Mrs. May respected her for that, though, like other nurses, she was curious, and despised confidential ladies, while she listened with zest. Mr. Dand looked up, and asked her to ring the bell at her elbow. "'Call Mr. Johnson,' he said curtly to the clerk who answered the summons. Mr. Johnson duly appeared. Mrs. Dand, who had only just left the office, to lunch in the high town with a great lady— the wife of the chief, had been confiding to him at some length the result of her recent interview with her husband. He thought she had done well and diplomatically. His eyes were full of sympathetic intelligence. He gazed eagerly on Mrs. May, according to Mrs. Dand, the accredited messenger of the woman, for whose sake he could not bear to live with Melisande, who had traduced her. "'News of Amy, Johnson,' Dand said. "'She's dead.' "'Sign this document for me, please. Read it first. Mr. Johnson, horribly flustered, for Mrs. Dan's intelligence had in no wise prepared him for this, gave a quick strained glance at Jeremy Dand. He did not like the colour of his skin, the dull ferocity of his eyes, their reddened orbits. "'What's this?' he asked, roughly, in his perturbation. "'Curse it all, he had cared for Amy, too. Dand might have spared him the shock somewhat.' but he thought only of himself, always had. A codicil to my will. It's correct, but read it. 
It seems to me that it's hardly the time to settle important things. You are tired. It's the luncheon hour. Mind your own business. Read it, man. I give and bequeath, the secretary unwillingly spelled out. You have written it vilely, I must say. To Esme Misericordia Stevens. Who may she be? Mine. I am leaving her, as you see, a fortune of fifty thousand pounds. It is well that I am rich, with all these children to dower. Hugh and Arina, nor Dulce either, won't suffer. Edith will not be prejudiced in any way, neither in position or in money, and that's all she cares about, luckily. There's not the slightest need for you to hesitate, in their interests, do you hear? Well, go on. Mr. Johnson still hesitated. His employer's eyes flashed. "'Don't dare to have conscientious objections, you damned fool. Excuse me, nurse. We have known each other a long time.' "'No, I suppose I can have no valid objections, but I must say I do object to being hustled,' expostulated Mr. Johnson, wiping his forehead and looking wildly round the room. He felt that he ought to interfere, to manage to slow things down a bit. Dan seemed so queer to-day, hardly fit to dispose of thousands.' "'Sign, man!' his pitiless friend goaded him. "'Don't stare about. There's no sister Anne to come to you.' "'There, that's done. Now, Mrs. May, your signature, please. You quite understand what it means, do you not? The will won't be contested. You won't be dragged into a suit, I do assure you. My wife is a lady, and will be perfectly content with any arrangement I may make. She was in here just now to signify her willingness, and I am of sound mind—' in spite of your critical remarks on my handwriting, Johnson. There now, that's done, and well done. Everybody will be pleased. Money goes a long way towards a solution, so I have always thought. Good thing I am a miser. She always said so. He put his hand to his forehead. I am sane, but not well. It is hot. A wasp has stung me, or did I bang my head against the wall? He asked them innocently, no matter. Thank you both, and good-bye. Stay, there was something... Oh, yes, yes, Johnson, of your love of me. Do you mind taking Mrs. May across to the Continental and seeing that she has something to eat? Amy... They both jumped. Thought of that. Good-bye, Mrs. May. I only hope I shall not have spoilt your appetite, one way or another." He turned sharply to Mr. Johnson. "'Be off with you now. The set lunch is at one. Farewell. Good-bye.' He seemed languidly in a hurry. He shook hands with the quiet, waiting woman, and with Mr. Johnson, who began to speak. But Dand appeared purposely to misunderstand him, as Mr. Johnson thought afterwards. "'No, I, I can't join you, I'm afraid. You, you must excuse me. I have a few little things to attend before I can meet my wife.' "'Jeremy!' again faltered the secretary, seriously distressed. Dan's tone changed from politeness to menace. "'Do as I ask you, Johnson, and don't interfere. I know what I am about.' He bowed them both to the inner door, courteously, in his best client manner, and, going slowly back to his desk, fixed his eyes on the photograph from the Pieta of Andrea del Sarto. Then he raised the pistol to his cheek, with a deep sigh of relief and life-weariness. "'Now, Amy,' he said, 
you were so keen on not breaking up my home the end end of chapter 49 end of white rose of weary leaf by violet hunt recorded by lisa reichert